Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. And welcome back into more outdoors. We also have a text message uh, board that comes directly in here the studio at 870-870. If you prefer to text in your question or your comment, uh, we have a special guest joining us, Harry Blanchette, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries Marine Biologist. We've asked Mr. Blanchette to come on with us and talk about some of the impacts from the Bonnie Carey Spillway opening. A lot of you have been asking how long will these uh, effects be lasting, what extent will it be, and uh, hopefully we'll get some of those answers, although they may not be available at this point yet. Harry, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Good morning, Don. No problem. Hello? Um, this yeah. is unprecedented. The uh, yeah, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, I just great. Got a little... uh, this is un. Yeah, there's going to be a little just... bit of a delay in it. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, it'll just be a slight delay. Um, this is unprecedented. The, the opening of a spillway twice in the same year. Um, I don't know about the length of it as far as years back, but there's a suffice it to say there's a tremendous amount of Mississippi fresh water coming into our estuaries. Um, I don't know how you'd like to approach it, but you know maybe you could do it on a breakdown by uh, species. Maybe talk about oysters if you can, crabs, shrimp, and and finfish, and and kind of give us the the update on where we are now as far as what we see and and what we can expect depending on. You know, a lot of variables in it as far as how long it's open and how much comes in and what other kind of weather we get associated with it. But you approach it any way you like, and if I get some calls and questions, I'll I'll pass them along to you. Well, yeah, well, let's start off by talking about predictions. Uh, there was, uh, in the 1800s, there was a English prime minister who said it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future, and I tend to follow that pretty closely. It's really difficult to say when this is all going to be over because it really depends on the rain that hasn't fallen yet and, you know, how wet a summer do we have and all of those kinds of things. Uh, This is, you know, the last time we had a a Morganza opening in 2011, we had a very different situation because Outside of the river levees, we had a drought going on. This year, outside of the river levees, it's wet. And so we've not only got what water is coming out of the Mississippi and the Chafalaya, we also have the water coming down the Pearl, the Tesh, the Vermilion, the Calcasieu, uh, and every, uh, you know, 
the, the Sabine and everything in between. Uh, so there's different impacts this year than even in the most comparable other years. It's, you know, every year is the same as the other years. It's, they're all different. Um, so having said all of that, uh, just start off with oysters. Oysters are a very good sentinel for what's going on in the estuary because they can't get up and swim away. So they have to take it or they can't take it anymore and they die. We have seen pretty extensive oyster mortality in some of our public oyster seed grounds uh, east of the river. We are seeing some areas also in other areas that are beginning to see some stress. Uh, we, we're seeing some mortality in the Vermilion Bay area, which is, of course, receiving all of that water coming down the Atchafalaya. Um, so the, what we're seeing right now is that, oh, say a month and a half ago, mortality rates were not bad because water temperatures were still low, and every once in a while they get a little bit of salt water, get into one of those areas, and it would uh, give those oysters a break and they'd be able to hold on for a little while longer. Well, the water temperatures have warmed up, and so they can't hold on as well as they could a month or so ago, and we're starting to see more extensive mortality. We expect that to continue. The question really is how much and how long before the mortality event stops. And that's kind of going to be the same sort of a story with a lot of other species is it really depends. You know, right now we're talking about not maybe not river levels at, at this level, but still abnormally high river levels well into July. And that's not unprecedented, but following an event like this, it is significant, and so we're going to have to, as an agency, continue to monitor uh, these ongoing effects because we have, you know, both the, the, the resources that we manage directly, like our public oyster seed grounds, and the ones that we have, uh, I say, less information on, like our, the private leases for oysters. We don't have good information on a regular basis for where are the resources within those private leases? Are they more in the upper or the lower part of the estuary? And what's going on with them? We're right now trying to collect some information on where those fishermen are seeing some mortality and trying to characterize that in a more, at least, uh, semi-quantitative way. Uh, but that's kind of typical of what you're going to hear from me as we talk about any of the other resources. Certainly the other one that we have seen some direct impacts, uh, I don't know if any folks tried to go out for the opening of the brown shrimp season. Uh, to And essentially that is the brown shrimp crop this year has been significantly impacted by the 
floody fat, brown shrimp or another species that requires salt water. And even prior to the opening of the season, our fishery independent samples, the ones that we use to set the season, showed a remarkable reduction in catch per effort uh, prior to that opening compared to our long-term averages of that. We've been doing this for quite a while now, and if you just look over the last 10 years, uh, this year we were expecting this to be a poor brown shrimp season. Uh, Harry, with regard to the shrimp, um, some of the marinas that sell live shrimp are reporting that they're having difficulty keeping them alive in their contained tanks, which the salinity is is artificially controlled. Is it that Mm -hmm. the shrimp are sick or they're compromised, that they're not surviving, or is it a change from taking them into a freshwater environment and trying to put them into a saline environment or a little bit more saline is is putting them into shock or actually causing them to die? It can be a combination of a lot of different uh, situations there. And so without looking at the specifics of an individual case, it's hard for me to say. But I think to a degree both of those may be happening in that in some cases these are shrimp that are in stressed situations, so they are going to be less hardy than they would be in a normal year just because they don't have the food reserves to uh, handle that additional stress. So that is going to increase your mortality. Uh, when you put them into that tank, because your handle, all of that handling is a, is a stress on those animals. And then the second thing, you're correct. Anytime right. you're changing the salinity on a species, they have to make some physiological changes to adapt to that changing salinity. So it's one thing if that shrimp adapts itself over time, but if you dip it out of water in one salinity and throw it into water in another salinity, um, that's not something that they undergo in nature. Uh, so that's a that's a strong impact on them. All right, uh, we're going to take a break here. Huh? When we come back, uh, i got another question. I want to get back to the oysters, and we'll do that. If you've got a question or a comment for Harry Blanchette about the impacts of Bonnicari or Morganza spillway water entering into our estuaries, we invite you to call 504-260-6368, or we have a text board, 870-870. We're right back after this. And we have with us a marine biologist, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, Harry Blanchette. We're talking about impacts of the Bonnie Carey spillway, uh, diverting water uh, through the spillway into Lake Pontchartrain, into Bourne, areas of Lake Catherine, the Ship Channel, Breton Sound area. In fact, the uh, complaints all the way from the Mississippi Gulf Coast about negative impacts. Uh, Harry, getting back to those oysters, uh, you mentioned extensive mortality east of the river. Um, what how long does a comeback of oysters take? And, and we don't know how long the freshwater condition is going to exist, but let's just say in one certain area the there was 100% mortality over an oyster reef 
And when conditions finally get back to somewhat normal where salinities and temperatures get back to some optimum conditions, do oysters come back? What what does it take for an oyster reef to regenerate itself, or can it regenerate itself, or does it have to have assistance from uh, from man? Oyster reefs are really a classic case of what an estuarine animal is. They are very adaptable. The reef itself uh, is there because the conditions are changeable, and it has survived those kinds of variable conditions over a very long period of time. Now, certainly, as our coasts change over time, there are places that become more or less suitable for oyster reefs. So that's why there's cases where we've got reefs that are, you know, tens of feet deep that are no longer productive uh, just because, you know, the salinities are no longer there. You know, I'm thinking specifically about some of those uh, historic reefs that were off of uh, the, the Chafalaya Bay. You know, those were, there was very little or no living resource on those reefs uh, just because the Atchafalaya was was hired uh, after we finished rechanneling all of the Red River and Old River control structure and all the rest of that to go down the Atchafalaya than it was in the 1850s or 1840s. So those conditions changed, and we've seen changes like that in other parts of the state as our coast has evolved, collapsed, changed, all the rest of it. So back to your question. We have essentially two times during the year when oysters have a strong spat set, when the new oysters recruit to those reefs. And one of them is in the spring and one of them is in the fall. Well, the spring spat set is probably not going to be much of anything in any of the areas that are being impacted just because we're talking freshwater in those areas. You're not going to get a spat set. But what you are doing right now is those oysters are dying. They're opening up. And that is going to be a lot of fresh uh, shell material that will be available for new oysters to set on in the fall. If conditions have returned to something near normal, we can expect that there will be a spat set this fall. And that's when we're going to start seeing those oysters come back. So they land on that uh, freshly dead shell or anything. <laughs> They're an oyster, so they, any, anything that's a hard substrate that don't run away from them, they'll set on it. And they'll, some of them will survive, some of them will die. But over time, the majority of them will start growing up. And naturally, they're not going to grow very much the following winter. But then next spring, if conditions are normal, um, but let's say if conditions are similar to what we have historically expected, because I don't know what normal is anymore. We've had so many strong, strong uh, exactly. spring floods that... We have to kind of caveat that a bit. So if conditions are uh, moderate in the spring and we have decent survival in those areas, then they'll be have that first 
uh, summer of growth. There'll be a, a very nice seed oyster in the following fall. And uh, uh, then the year after that, they'll be growing up into, uh, at least some of them will be getting up into market size oysters. So, you know, it's up by the end of not this next summer, but the one after that, there should be a strong rebound in oyster production, or at least oyster uh, populations. I did want to um, go a little bit sideways on you. One of the things I'm sure that some of your uh, listeners are interested in is recreational fin fish. And um, back uh, until now, whenever we've had one of these events, it's always been months and months before we would have any sort of information on, so how is this impacting our recreational fisheries? Now, obviously, if anybody has been out fishing lately, you might have been going out, starting out going for redfish, and you ended up with a a few blue catfish in the box because the conditions are much fresher than they would have been. But right now with the creel, we have more um, near real-time data. We still have a delay, as you know, in our data. But uh, uh, real-time, our statewide landings for spotted sea trout are down quite a bit from what we saw in 2018. And if you remember right, 2018 was not what anybody called a glorious year. It was a down year then. So uh, red drum as well, we're not seeing the numbers of redfish that we have seen in in prior years. And like I said, you know, this is this is not just an east of the river thing. This is something you've got that Mississippi River wraps around and affects the lower part of Barataria Bay. You've got the Atchafalaya that's going to be impacting the western part of Terrebonne Bay quite strongly. It's going to be impacting uh, Vermilion Bay. So it's you know it's and and the local rainfall in Calcasieu Lake is having some of those salinities down more than we have seen. We're seeing we're starting to see some oyster mortalities in Calcasieu Lake due to fresh water, which is something that we have not seen in a long time in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry, I just got a text in from a recreational fisherman who said he found a silver carp washed up at the end of Lake Road. Lake Road is a road that parallels Bayou Lacombe and ends at the mouth of uh, Bayou Lacombe where it empties into Lake Pontchartrain, mm-hmm. which brings up an mm-hmm. important point. Invasive species. What what can we expect in terms of invasive species coming through the Bonnie Carry and getting turned into a brackish or what should be a brackish estuary? Okay, one down, a billion to go. Um, the the <laughs> silver carp are going to be going into the uh, Pontchartrain Basin through through the spillway. They have been going through the spillway, and they've been going whether, whether the spillway is open or not. If you've got high river, if you've got flow through those between, between the pins there, you're going to have some fish washing into that basin anyway. So I don't know that we can fully blame the Corps of Engineers for that. This is something that 
whether they pulled the pins or didn't, we're going to get uh, the carp. We're going to get anything else that is in that river is going to be coming. Um, what we're it's a lot of those fish can survive in brackish water. They don't necessarily do well in brackish water because they are really a freshwater species, but like a lot of other freshwater species, they can tolerate some brackish water. Um, They're a filter feeder, so while they're there, there will be some competition between them and the rest of the filter feeders that we have in the system. But on the flip side of that, well, I can't say that it's a flip side. It's it's a bad idea on both sides of the coin in this case. There's likely to be a whole lot of production in that Pontchartrain area this spring and summer because you're likely to get a whole bunch of algal blooms because of all the nutrients that are coming into the lake. So we can expect algal blooms and uh, phytoplankton blooms and then the, uh, and perhaps certainly in places like dead-end canals and uh, marinas and such as that, we'll probably get more than our typical share of fish kills. So, uh, but that, that does supply some food to these filter-feeding organisms. So while there's going to be some competition for our native species, that is also going to be an abundance of food, abundant food supply while there's oxygen in the water, at least. But in the All right, long we need run, to take a break here. We come back. Sure. Yeah, hold that thought, Harry. We're going to take a break. We'll come back, and uh, we'll talk more about the finfish situation, invasive species. Also, a little bit about crabs, impact of crabs. I saw a really disturbing video that was recorded by an angry and frustrated commercial crabber. And also, uh, are there any consumptive uh, war- uh, warnings out there about consumption, consuming oysters or fish or shrimp under these conditions? Harry Blanchett is with us, marine biologist, Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Got a question or a comment? Text us at 87870 or call 504-260-6368. We'll be right back after this quick timeout. And welcome back in to More Outdoors. Harry Blanchette is with us, marine biologist with Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, talking about the impacts of river diversion with the high Mississippi River, and not just the diversion through Bonnie Carey, but uh, the high Atchafalaya and some of the impacts to our saltwater species, the oysters, the crabs, the brown shrimp, and also our finfish. Harry, when we left off, you were talking about algal blooms and invasive species on uh, finfish. You want to continue with that? Well, again, uh, the future of invasive species in Lake Pontchartrain is in the future, and so the only thing we really know about that is that it's going to get here one day, and we'll be able to know more about it when it gets here. But we've seen these fish in Lake Pontchartrain in the past. I expect that they will be moving into some as those as the lake salts up again. They'll be moving into some of the rivers, and so they may have some impacts in, uh, you know, in some areas where we have not seen silver carp before. And this is a species that, if you're flying down in a fast boat and one of these things jumps in front of your boat, as they tend to do, uh, those things hurt when they hit. They can, they, you know, be very careful. You know, hang on to things. They will knock you out of your boat if you're not being careful. And one of them jumps up and hits you. 
it's it's a it's a safety issue. And now, how long this is going to last? Uh, like I said, we've had these in the river for quite a few years now, and we have seen them not really get established in places like Pontchartrain, but we certainly are seeing more of them in places than we saw five, ten years ago. So it's hard to really predict how important that's going to be in the future. I just would want people to uh, be aware, be safe, certainly be be sure that you're wearing a life jacket as always, but uh, we now have a whole new reason to be wearing a life jacket. And uh, so I just leave it at that. You started to talk about blue crab, and what we saw with blue crab is that uh, commercial landings of blue crab, we don't have uh, very current data. The latest that we have is through April. Um, Typically, it takes a while for us to fully process the data that comes in from commercial trip tickets because we have to be sure that all of the numbers are actually what the uh, what somebody wrote down and not a, uh, you know, that that is an eight and not a smeared six or a five or something else. So getting all of the numbers straight takes a while. Uh, however, we are looking at some preliminary data from April and March, and it does look like blue crab landings or down for those two months statewide. And how much those landings are down does vary across the different basins. Some are obviously more impacted than others. So um, to to the point you had made, yes, uh, blue crabs definitely are, the the commercial landings of blue crabs are taking a hit right now. But uh, what that means, once the water goes down, how long is it going to take blue crab to come back into those systems? That's a swimming crab, and they're going to be coming back a whole lot faster than oysters will. So it's a lot of it is going to depend upon you know what those conditions are in uh, July, August, September, uh, for us to know what we're going to be seeing during those months. But uh, I expect that blue crab will be back uh, you know, that's going to be one of those fish that we're going to be starting to see uh, sooner than some of the others. How exactly are crabs impacted by fresh water? Uh, is, is it a mortality situation, or are they just displaced and not available to the fishermen? Because I've caught crabs and seen crabs in places like Bayou Gauche and the Zalmans, which have, you know, very low salinity rates, and the crabs seem to be doing fine. They're not very fat as far as uh, for the table, but uh, they certainly seem to be healthy. How are they impacted by fresh water? Well, crabs are, uh, crabs are pretty much like uh, some of our other species. They can tolerate low, very low salinities. Uh, male blue crabs especially will go all the way up in the fresh water, and so they that's like what you're talking about. Some of these areas, you can get, you know, that that's that uh, wintertime fishery that you get for those big male blue point crabs in some of our very fresh areas. Um, same thing with the juveniles. They can tolerate uh, 
near fresh salinities, but they really are not a freshwater species. They need to have a little bit of salt in the water. So as those juveniles are there, you know, you're going to see them more concentrated further south in the system. Um, And so they are going to be uh, not in places, and certainly the adults, the female crab spawns in high salinity water, typically offshore. So you're, you know, that's where you get those uh, crabs, those the big fat females in the lower bays, and during the summertime, like getting to be right now and into July, is you're getting some of those, you know, uh, getting ready to spawn, and so they're in the lower part of the bay, moving toward the offshore areas. Those are going to, if you've been fishing on female crabs, they you need to be fishing further south than you had been fishing historically uh, in many of our estuaries just because you don't have the salt in those waters. It's not, but crabs, unlike oysters, they've got, crabs have fins, they swim, they move, and so their response to fresh water for at least the larger ones is to pick up and move. Now, obviously, the little, you know, half-inch crabs don't have as much ability to move, but they will get up there and swim and move. And so you're not going to see the mortality directly in crabs like you will in oysters. What you're going to see is you're going to see a movement on those populations. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. As far as uh, consumptive warnings, I haven't seen any issued yet. Can we expect any? Uh, I've talked to some people who said, I would not eat an oyster right now. They see some of these fish with the sores on them that obviously cause from being in, in, in fresh water when they're uh, more of a brackish water fish. Uh, do Have there been any issued, and do we expect to see any, and when might that be? So o- oysters, for health purposes, are managed by the Louisiana Department of Health. And the Department of Health has closed several areas to oyster harvest. That being said, um especially if you're dealing with raw oysters, you're dealing with a product that you really uh, need to pay attention to what is in that sack that's right there in front of you. Because, yeah, you can have some stressed oysters in a sack, and you can have some dead oysters in a sack. When that oyster was harvested, might have been kicking quite well, but it was under stress. So you want to check to be sure that those oysters are good when you're eating them that they're alive and that they're coming from an area that is open by the Department of Health. You know, that's why they've got tags on those oysters. The, uh, but they have closed several areas, especially east of the river, um, and they're, they're trying to stay ahead of this. So the reason you're not seeing warnings on health is because they're closing those areas before there's a need to put out a health advisory for for eating oysters. Well, hopefully that uh, they won't slip and fall between the cracks and some of these contaminated uh, unhealthy oysters don't get into the into the food chain of humans anyway. Um, Harry, what about marine mammals? We talked about the finfish, the crabs, the shrimp, the oysters. Uh, 
Uh, I'm seeing reports of dead dolphins washing up. Is this just uh, noticing them more and it's natural mortality, or is there something that this freshwater is doing and, and, and really affecting marine mammals? Honestly, I don't know. The, the marine mammal piece is being handled through our Office of Wildlife, and we have been working with NOAA to uh, respond to reports of dead marine mammals and sea turtles uh, through our Office of Wildlife. And so they're making collections and doing necropsies and making those evaluations, but I don't have the information on that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this may be out of your realm of responsibility or study, but as far as uh, this being a learning lesson, a lesson learned on freshwater diversion, which is a, a very important and integral part of the coastal master plan, um, mm-hmm. could this serve to provide some information on some do's and don'ts with regard to adjusting the coastal master plan in regard to freshwater diversion? Well, certainly we are, hopefully we are always learning stuff from everything that goes on in our coast because uh, that's how we come up with a, a good plan to begin with, and that's how we pay attention to make sure we don't make any more mistakes than man normally does make. But that being said, there's a big difference between a controlled diversion of even 50,000 cubic feet per second into an area versus an uncontrolled flow of a few times that much into an area. And it's as I was saying earlier this year, it's not just what's coming down the pipe in the Mississippi River. We also have this huge amount of local and uh, regional rainfall so that all of our other rivers are also in high flood stage, and that's adding uh, insult to injury in a lot of these areas so that that's why I was saying that we really can't uh, compare this directly to 2011 because the local situations are different. Certainly, uh, I think that the operational plans of any of these diversions is going to have to be considering what's going on within those local estuaries if you don't want to have some uh, un- unusual or uh, you know extreme impacts on some of our local situations. But the point is, is that is something that they actually do have more control of because these are not flood control devices. These are supposed to be land building. That's a very different purpose. So, you know, that's that's something that if if they are managed for the purpose that they're built, you're not going to have the same impact on wildlife and fish resources as you do for something that's built for flood control. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, one thing that's puzzling, and, and I had a listener earlier wanted to know about this, you know, you, you go down to Venice, and, and Venice is right there where, you know, it's got the bird's foot delta and the water is just pouring out of the Mississippi going right there. And yeah. we've never seen problems with dead dolphins or uh, fish kills or, you know, the crabbing generally is pretty good around there. Uh, fin fishing is good. 
why is we don't see those effects on, on a yearly basis with that amount of fresh water going there? Is it because it just gets mixed into the, the vast salty areas of the Gulf and gets diluted quickly, or is there something else going on down there? Well, what you see in Venice is you see a river delta that has been established as a – it's not – we can't actually call it natural river delta, but actually, you know, it's about as natural as we get these days. Uh, it's it's a functional river delta that has these high river pulses every year. And so if there's animals that aren't capable of handling those kind of high river pulses every year, they haven't been there for a while. Or they have found where they can be in those springtime events and are and have figured out, you know, things like, like you mentioned, porpoises. I'm sure that they're not sitting there right next to Venice Marina looking for some salt water. They're, they've found some places where there is some salt water. You probably do have some uh, porpoise mortality in some of those areas, but it's, it's part, that is part of nature. You're going to have some level of natural mortality on dolphins uh, every year. But what we certainly are concerned about is if we see uh, abnormal levels of mortality, and that's when we have to start looking at what's causing that. And as I said, that's that's kind of out of my bailiwick, but I can't say that much of it. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I guess it's Mother Nature's way. You know, the environment changes and the ebbs and seafood and marine life all adjust to it. And if they're not can't survive there, they won't be there. They'll be in places where yeah, they the can. One that, mm-hmm, the one that seems to have the most difficulty in adapting to it is man, because we want to go fish the same places we've always <laughs> gone fish and catch the same species. That's right. Right. We don't want change, and unfortunately, uh, it's inevitable. Harry, enjoyed the visit as always. Thanks for giving us an awful lot of information. I know there's a lot we can't get, but... You know, the further and further we get into this, and the more we know, the more we'll the more we'll know. Yes, this is still early in the whole thing, and uh, we're not going to know until not only is until, not uh, not just when it's over, but when the uh, remaining impacts, things like algal blooms in the summertime, offshore dead zone size, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Until those are all done, we're really not going to know. If, uh, full characterization of what's going on this year. So, you know, we're, everyone is anxious for us to say what, what the impact of this is. We're doing our best right now to monitor what's going on, to collect as much data as we possibly can, and to get it out as quickly as we can to people like federal government and uh, other places where people who are concerned about fishery disaster are going to have to turn to eventually. But un- we, we don't have those answers until the answers actually are available. And right now we still have an awful lot of unanswered right. questions. Agreed. Thanks again, Harry. We always appreciate it. No problem. Thanks a lot, Tom. Have a good weekend. Harry Blanchett, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries Marine Biologist. All right, we got a few minutes after this break. If you want to get a call or question in, we welcome it at 878-704-260-6368. I still got a stack of emails I haven't even got to yet. I'll try to get to a couple of those. Stick around. We'll be back right after this.
But on the time, boy, that four hours, where did it go? Well, anyway, hopefully you get a chance to participate in the free fishing weekend because you've got a license already. Remember, you might need to get it renewed, and it will expire at the end of the month. Some states, uh, they run on a calendar year. From the date you purchase, you get 365 days here in Louisiana. You only get from the time you purchase it until June 30th. But if you don't have a license for this year and you want to buy one, you can buy next year's license, and they will accept that during this month as a current license, so you won't have to buy two licenses. But it's free this weekend, so just don't even worry about it if you're going to go fishing this week. All right, let me get to quickly get to some of these emails. Uh, I've been holding some of these for a while. Uh, this one is from Smokey. Smokey says <laughs> that Paddlepalooza is in the books, a noticeable increase in the flounder being caught this year. 36 fish were weighed in. I'm sure more were caught. I know because I skipped the weigh in and just ate mine stuffed with boudin. Oh, that sounds good, huh? Boudin stuffed flounder. Anyway, it's a, maybe it's a sign of better things to come. And I agree with you 100%, Smokey. Uh, flounders are showing up uh, much more frequently than they have in the past couple of years. Maybe that's a sign of a rebound, and hopefully it is. All right, here's another one. This one is from Nancy. Nancy says, I forget which charter captain uh, hosted a talk on starting a charter lodge business. I thought, Captain Ryan, please let me know the who, where, and when. Uh, what Nancy is referring to is a segment we aired on Bayou Wild TV, and it was Captain Ryan Lambert. We asked him to kind of profile what it takes to, to run a charter business. You know, that's kind of one of these living the dream businesses. In fact, uh, there's been several fishing guides that name their business Living the Dream. Um, well, sometimes it's a nightmare, <laughs> and some of these guys will tell you. It is not an easy business. It's very difficult. You have to uh, wear a lot of hats, not just a fishing hat. You, yeah, you got to be a good fisherman, but you also have to be a good host and a, a good uh, joke teller and a good cook or have good cooks and take care of a lodge, and uh, there's a lot of things involved in it. Uh, be an accountant, run the business, the red and the black ink, the profit and loss statements, Filing taxes, it's it's a business, and it's a service business. It's not I get to go fishing every day in my life at all. The customer is the one that you have to be concerned with, and I've seen that, uh, you know, let's just put it this way. The Boot Hill Cemetery is full of would-be guides with good intentions. But anyway, the, the ones that are there that stick around as long as the Captain Ryans and the Mike Gallows and the Tofield Bourgeois, uh, those guys, they do it right, and it certainly is uh, smart of Nancy to actually uh, take the hint and uh, get some information before whoever it is she's interested in, in starting a, a charter business. Anyway, that program aired, uh, I want to say it was uh, the first week in March. If you go to BuyYouWildTV.com, look through some of the past episodes, it's either going to be the first or second uh, feature that aired in uh, in March, and uh, listen to Ryan Lambert what he has to say. He's a guy that uh, knows about what he knows exactly what he's talking about. And then I get uh, this one in, and this is a kind of a repeat, but it's good to to remind people about it. Uh, this is from Arthur, and basically to paraphrase his email, he wanted to know about uh, charter boats that used to be called head boats. And there used to be a fleet of them. Uh, they left out of Empire. They left out of Grand Isle. Uh, one of the more famous ones and one I was really associated with was Captain Charlie Hardison, uh, who ran 
uh, the Flying Fish and the Flying Fish 2 out of the Fushong. He actually bought the marina, his boats left out of there. And it was in the days where you would get these are big boats. And there were, you know, some, the, the, the biggest one was the Miss Mississippi. And that used to operate out of Empire. But there was the early bird and the cougar. I think the cougar is still around, but they've changed their MO on fishing. And you could put, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 people on these boats. Uh, and, and they called them head boats because you paid by the head. Well, you didn't charter the whole boat. You could go and there'd be people there you didn't know. And you just brought your rod, your reel, and uh, sometimes they had bait, they had ice, or you brought your ice chest, and whatever fish you caught, you kept. And it was a bonanza out there. You'd just go to a rig, and they would tie up to the rig, and everybody would drop to the bottom. And up would come the snapper, red snappers, and the mix of all the other snappers, vermilions, lane snappers, um, mangroves. But really, the, the number one target was white trout and croakers. And I'm talking about bull croakers, uh, three, four pounds, uh, white trout that get up to about the same size, and they would put a double hook, and you just take a piece of squid or cut bait and drop it down to the bottom with a weight, whatever weight you needed to get through the current and get down to the bottom of the rig leg. And in no time, boom, boom, you'd hear a couple, you'd feel a couple of bumps and start reeling up, and before you know it, you had ice chests full of these fish. Well, they haven't been there for a long time. And it's kind of puzzling because, as we were talking about this morning, Robbie Campos said right there by the Hopedale Dam, you can go there and load up on, on white trout. There's no size limit. There's no numbers limit, no quantity. You can catch all you want, any size you want, and keep them. Um, normal years, you would catch them right there by Chef Pass in some of those little areas and, and deeper holes in the lake right there and just load up on them. But the big ones that two, three-pound-plus that you used to catch in the Gulf of Mexico, like Benny Grunt says, ain't there no more. They are just not, nobody knows where or what happened to them. It's kind of a mystery. Same thing with croakers. Uh, you can go to bait shops at Bridgeside Marina in Grand Isle, or you can go down there to Hopedale Marina, and as you get a little bit late in the summer and early fall, uh, you can buy croakers. They call them Bridgeside Dynamite. They're so effective on speckled trout. And they've got thousands of croakers that are three or four inches long, some bigger than that, and the trout love them. But try to catch a croaker that's big enough to eat. Uh, they used to be out by the, the tons out there in the Gulf, and they'd come up with the white trout. And sometimes you'd have a, a bull croaker on one hook and a white trout on the other hook. And another Benny Grunch fish ain't there no more. What happened to them? Uh, one popular theory, and, and I kind of believe in this, that back in those days, the snapper were really seriously and honestly overfished, not like what the government said recently. And because of the absence of snapper, these fish thrived. But when the snapper made the comeback, they outmaneuvered and out-ate the croaker and the white trout and took over, and so no more of them out there in the numbers that they once were. All right, uh, let's read Alleman. He's singing a song I wrote called Cocodry, and it's time for me to get out of here. And we'll see you again next week, 7 to 9, with another edition of More Outdoors. But before that, if you get up early, real dark and early at 5, you can catch the Outdoors with Don Dubuque Radio Network. Have a great weekend, and try to fish, even if it's for free. See you next week. Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. 
Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. 